Hello, everyone, and welcome to another edition of Troy Noons is an Absolute Podcast. Syracuse Sports Make Me Drink. I'm your host, as always, John Casillo, and with me today is Dan Lyons. Hello, everyone. Uh, ha- happy, happy lacrosse season? Happy lacrosse season. It's <laughs> baseball starts on Thursday. Yes, happy baseball season tomorrow for all of my fellow Mets fans. Um, <laughs> An eventful week for Mets fans, actually. Three weeks. We have three weeks, maybe, and then we'll probably be in the tank, but we'll make these, these first three count. Listen, I, I, I think this, this Mets season goes one of a few ways. Either A, Mets start off l- like lightning hot and then, and then completely fade by like late August. Oh, it's usually earlier yeah. than that. I know, I know. <laughs> Option number two, Mets start out 500-ish and then manage to like sneak into contention around early August and then full-on collapse by the first week of September. Third option, Mets look like utter garbage for the first like four months of the season and then spend the last couple months of the season on a complete tear and fall like two games short of making the second wild card. And there is no fourth option. No, there is no fourth option. <laughs> <laughs> I guess the last one's like the one I would sign for, but like none of those are great, especially because we're getting like a vague amount of playoff hype. Yeah, I, I mean, admittedly, I gave us some today in, in, in a, an opinion that does not matter uh, on Twitter. Where I said we would be the second wild card and lose to the Rockies. Yeah, I mean that being in that wild card game is like very much a consolation. It like almost doesn't feel like, it's like being in the playing game for the NCAA tournament. Like if you lose, it really doesn't feel like you were in it. Having done that a couple years ago, but I guess you signed for that versus the normal Mets season where it's it's usually start hot and then just collapse into oblivion. Yeah, I, I do recall you know about a year ago when the Mets started eleven and one and we were. We were very much hyping the fact that the Mets were never going to lose again. And then they, they very much did lose quite a bit. That they did. But we signed a bunch of players, but none of like the really, really good ones, just the <laughs> okay ones. <laughs> we signed a lot of those. We, we, we locked up Jason uh, Jacob DeGrom, which is shocking. I thought we would... Every, all signs pointed... I don't know why we've gotten a Mets tan, tangent right off the bat. All we've signs pointed before. towards us just completely blowing that situation, despite the fact that we hired his agent as our GM, but we got him on a, I think, a very, very good contract for both sides, so I guess we are looking up going into the season, and we'll probably lose to the Nationals 9-2 to tomorrow, and then, you know, we'll be off to the races. I'll take it. That's why I watch another team in person out here, in any case. Um, yes, you watch that team lose in the World Series. That's fine. <laughs> Said I, I'm not claiming that team is mine, I'm just claiming that as a team that I watch. <laughs> In any case, uh, that was your Mets talk for at least a couple weeks, probably. I felt like it was topical today, though, because of the fact that uh, Noah Syndergaard was not happy about going to Syracuse. He had every right not to be happy about going to Syracuse. And it wasn't really directed at Syracuse, and that's what I think a lot of people kind of didn't understand, is that like it was never about Syracuse. He would have said the same thing if they decided to go to Boston or Los Angeles or anywhere else. It was the fact that they spent over a month in Florida largely away from their families, away from home, um, and then, you know, just two days before a grueling 162-game season starts, yeah, let's go fly up to, you know, central New York for a day for what basically amounts to a PR stunt, um, and then then you can go home. Yeah, it seems like it would have made more sense for, for that to be something you do at the beginning of spring. Yeah. Although, I mean, I know it's harder to fit it into 
Syracuse's schedule, but like not like they had to set up that much crazy stuff. Just those terrifying pitching mounds that uh, that looked like they were going to snap someone's ankle in half. If they tried to actually put pressure off of it, um, and like a couple of nets. So like I feel like they could have done this at the beginning of spring training, and it would have been a little less of a of a whole ordeal, and then just gone right to Florida. But it was one of those things where like I totally understood where Syndergaard was coming from. Um, and obviously he did. It wasn't like a, I only don't want to go to this one city in upstate New York. It was more of like a just. It's a dumb trip to make at the time we're making it. At the same time, like I wish he had handled it a little more gracefully, just because I know how the Syracuse uh, locals can be looking at, in Pete Davidson's direction somewhere. But I, I don't know. I thought the response was actually a little more muted than I expected. And then he tried to do like the the make well with the whole flag thing, um, and then jokingly calling us Stranton on Instagram. So just a real a real damn it with my baseball team and my college town this week yeah it was uh it was a trip i'm glad it's over and yeah now now baseball season can start and talking about syracuse now i guess basketball season can end dan why don't we start with the women's team and then get into the the frustration that was the men's team for those who weren't paying attention women's team proceeded to win the first round game unlike the men but then lose in excruciating fashion the second round game um, SU was three seed. They lost to six seed South Dakota State, despite the fact that they were playing at home. SU did a lot of the things that they did in losses this year: shoot too many from outside, not drive the ball enough inside, uh, turn the ball over a decent amount. Um, it seemed like there were maybe some injuries at play too. Uh, Tiana Magakahia didn't look at all like herself uh, for stretches, and unfortunately, SU season once again ends short of the Sweet 16 as it has for now almost 50 years um except for 2016 yeah not great uh it was disappointing um obviously not having the knowledge base about women's basketball like i didn't really know what to make of a sit-seated south dakota state jackrabbits team but thinking about the men's tournament i was like oh that's a, a very much a a low to mid major in the sixth seed, that's probably a, a bad sign. And that ended up being the case. They were quite good, although our team just didn't play up to its potential uh, outside of the run that it made to to dip back in the game late before collapsing. So definitely disappointing given the talent of the team. Uh, we'll see what happens with uh, Tiana and a couple of the other players who, um, because of their age might and, and their, their prospects, might actually jump early. I know that's been uh, discussed, and it's not totally unheard of. I think it's happened with a couple of significant players going from uh, women's basketball to the WNBA early slash whatever other pro leagues around the world there are. But yeah, just just definitely not an ideal finish for what was a fun uh, and really promising tournament run at the outset, especially with some of the potential matchups we had. Yeah, I mean, I kind of got into this in an article day after uh, talking a little bit about like, all right, I, I think at this point, and this isn't like to doubt Q because I think he's done a fantastic job of really turning this program into something in a very short amount of time. And and really, realistically, like with without a lot of resources and fan support to go with it either. But I think at the same time, like we, we've reached a plateau now of like, okay, like we make the tournament pretty much every year and only one time have we really like played ourselves, you know, again, past that first weekend. And, and I think with, with the amount of talent in the door and the amount of talent we've had in the door for, for a few years now, um, I do think that the, the pressure needs to be on a little bit, not on him directly, but on the program to just, you know, again, take that next step and become like a top 15-ish program um, on an annual basis and maybe build towards more. I don't think Syracuse, basketball, Syracuse women's basketball can become, you know, perennial top four to seven, eight-ish program just because of how crowded 
that space is and how much how many resources are, are, are dedicated to those programs We're talking like your Baylor's Yukon's uh, Louisville Notre Dame Mississippi State I guess a, a space formerly occupied by Tennessee um, programs like that I, I think Syracuse can jump in in the tier right below them um, at, at the current investment and I think the ACC network should help that but yeah I, I think that it's time that that SU kind of jumps up to that next plateau and, and hopefully we see it next year despite you know some of the likely departures yeah, I think Q said as much after the game as well. I think he's frustrated with it with it too, and obviously the the Final Four run kind of, oh, you know, takes away or, or overshadows some of the struggles we've had in March outside of that run. And I know there have been like some uh, circumstances to take away from it. I think there was one year we had major injuries and we played Kentucky, who was I think a, a lower seed or a similar seed in Lexington or in Louisville or something. So like, there there have definitely been spots where we didn't have things going in our favor. This year we did. We had just gotten pretty much fully healthy and going into the tournament. We were hosting this game. Um, we avoided like all of UConn, Louisville, Notre Dame, all the teams that give us trouble and that we were familiar with, and still obviously fell short. So we'll see. It's 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 tough because Q has like elevated the program to really where it's never been before. So you want to have patience. And I recruiting has gone well, and I think incrementally things have like really really improved. But. Uh, you do want to see that consistency we're making, you know, second weekend, even like more than just the one Final Four run. Um, so yeah, we'll see. It's it's a it's a little different. I think I think the one thing is that like with the the fan attention being what it is, um, and I do think it's improving. It's not the rabid, uh, it's not the rabid fan base that the the uh, basketball or even like the football lacrosse teams have. So I think they have been given some space to kind of build this thing at a, a pretty you know, relatively calm pace, but I think there's pressure coming from Q himself and, and he doesn't want to be stuck in this rut where he's uh, getting knocked out early and people are questioning like his big game coaching or questioning, you know, where this, the height of the ceiling of this program can be. So hopefully next year we'll, uh, we'll get back to the tournament. We'll make sure we're like still doing the, you know, being a tournament team every single year, which is important. And, and we continue to take some incremental steps forward, but it's hard not to be uh, disappointed with the with how things ended there. Yeah, agreed. And like, obviously, you know, I, I wouldn't doubt Q's big game coaching if only if for no other reason. I I would cite the 2016 championship game as, as case in point of, of how good of a, a big game coach he can be. Like SU still lost that game by about 30 to UConn in, in the national title, but they were playing them like tougher than just about anybody that season. And it was a it was a competitive game until like the mid second half, and then UConn did what it does. But like they looked, it was, it yeah, was they looked not, better than uh, most teams did against them that year. Oh yeah, and that was and that was another fun laden like like senior laden team. You know, uh, Alexis Peterson was was on that squad. Brittany Sykes like that that was a team that that really looked the part. And like when we knew going in that they weren't going to pull the upset, but they they certainly didn't play like they couldn't pull the upset. Um, and, and so I, I don't I don't doubt Q um, in, in big game spots. I, and I doubt him at all, to be honest. I, I think where I doubt is I just feel like sometimes we lose the plot a little bit. And, and this isn't unique to him. There's a lot of coaches and a lot of teams. I think sometimes we just kind of lose the plot um, in terms of what we're good at, um, get a little too uh, reliant on things that, that, that seem like are going to get us back in a game or, or put the game away. Um, or, or seem like they're in vogue, and, and unfortunately, it all just sort of collapses. And that was the case this season, pretty much in every game, where you take too many threes. If they're not falling, things can get away from you, you kind of quickly. And, and I think you know the men's team saw that as well. And I think 
that's a that's a sloppy-ish segue into talking about how Syracuse men's basketball lost to Baylor in frustrating fashion. Yes, like uh, almost a week, almost a full week ago now, and it uh, I can't it still tell if it sucks. feels like it's longer <laughs> or like it just happened. It definitely still sucks, though. That was it was rough. Yeah, I, I think. You know, we, we don't have to belabor it too much, like in, in fine detail, because I feel like we've done a bunch of it um, on Twitter, on the site, um, since it happened. But Syracuse was very much in the game. Well, first they were very much out of the game. Then they were very much in the game for, I'd say, at least 50% of the time in the middle there. And then spent the, you know, final, you know, 10 minutes of the game uh, systematically playing their way out by trying to keep up with a very hot shooting three-point team and putting themselves in a situation where if the threes weren't falling, they were going to lose. Yeah, I mean, it, it was it was uh, very double-edged because uh, Syracuse shot extremely well, especially early on to get back in the game. Um, but Baylor, like, shot at a clip that we really didn't think they could. Um, they were, like, a 34% shooting team, which is a... a barely a percent above where we were for the season and they shot 47 percent and uh it was like all spread around to it wasn't just makai mason which only you know only ended up at four for ten which is good for him but not great uh Tedler with three for three they had uh let's see five different guys had at least two threes so it was just from all over you couldn't you couldn't just take someone out of the game and, and not worry about it anymore it was it was the entire team they actually only out-rebounded us by three, which I know was a, a big thing entering the game, but their ball movement was fantastic, especially given the the reputation that Stott drew, not necessarily against the zone, but just as a general coach, especially in these big spots. Um, not the best. He hasn't won a ton of these big games, but I thought I thought they attacked the zone extremely well um, to get a lot of these open looks. Uh, and they just, you know, we, could, we couldn't quite get the... the the offense humming to where we could overtake them. They even when they cooled down, they were able to stay in it and they were able to to make some big plays. Uh, and it just was, it, you know, it was a disappointing effort. Obviously, made harder by the Frank Howard suspension, which we actually didn't, haven't even got a chance to talk about on here because it happened so soon before the game. But yeah, just another uh, crazy way to finish a season uh, in an unfortunate way, which involved you know one of our major players being out and. Uh, unfortunately, that has become a pretty common occurrence for Syracuse. Yeah, far too common occurrence, and not one that, like, I mean, I know, I know you listed it out, and other people have listed it out. Like, it's an incredibly frustrating line, even if you just look at the last decade, never mind looking, like, back at the program across the last 30, 40 years, how many times there's been a key absence, key injury, Frank being out uh, for, quote-unquote, violation of uh, athletic department policy, which was revealed to be something involving a drug test. We don't know what drug exactly. We're not going to speculate here. Nonetheless, the the, the worst possible time for that. Uh, I, I think, you know, you hit on a lot of the problems in this game. I, I think the offense was a big one. Despite that, like, you know, if, if you told us that we were going to score 69 points in this game beforehand, I think we would have said we were going to win. And, and that that's probably the most aggravating part is that a SU team that was... You know, pretty defensively driven all year, once again. Uh, actually wasn't as good on defense as you would think. Uh, they were 39th in Ken Palm efficiency on D, which is the worst. It's the second worst in the last 10 years. The only worst team was uh, the Putrid on defense, 2016-17 uh, team. Yes, uh, I think that's a, that dipped from, from this game. I think we were a little higher, but it was still in the, I think we were still in the 30s. Yeah. Um, 
Yeah, well, so, we stayed in the it, 30s, but I mean, just pointing out the fact that like this team defensively was nothing near what we've seen from some of these better Syracuse teams and some of these better Syracuse teams that have made some surprising runs in the NCAAs. Yeah, and that's so bizarre because we brought like everyone back from last year. Right. And you would think, if anything, if anything, the defense was going to be something that like would it would stay the same or improve from I what was I think like a top 15 unit last year, yeah. and it wasn't bad. It just wasn't what we expect, especially in this Baylor game, when we know in March, like, things get ratcheted up. I think Frank being out uh, had way more of an impact on defense and offense. Um, obviously, it would have been nice to have his shooting and his his uh, his ball handling, especially because it thrust Buddy, Buddy into a role where he was playing 39 minutes, and Baylor just completely took him out of the game um, very effectively. And with Frank, obviously, he, Buddy wouldn't have had to play that much time. And on defense, I think our, our perimeter D would have been that same proof because Frank was probably the best perimeter defense, defensive player on the team. So I don't know that I would have like you know led to the win or anything, but it's not crazy to think that uh, that your your starting point guard to be a nine game, a nine point flip. Although we've seen we saw games this year where Frank was like a complete zero out there. So I don't want to like just blame the loss on that. Oh yeah, and and I said that after the game. I know some fans like got on me about it, and like I, I think Frank could have flipped the result, but I don't think that. I'll say I think Frank could have flipped this result pretty easily, but I also don't think that that we lost because of him, his absence. Like I think no, that, if we if we play get get out on shooters better and we, you know, don't have these giant uh, lapses on both ends of the court like we did early in this one, like this would have been a very different game. Completely, yeah. Like I mean, Buddy Beheim's made some great strides on defense this year, but obviously, like if you watched him early in that game. Uh, very much out of position in the zone. And and in a lot of those open threes, I mean, Baylor could just do whatever the hell they wanted early. And a lot of that was because, you know, Buddy, unfortunately, just wasn't uh, wasn't where he needed to be on the perimeter. He's not the only one, but he was a key one that was definitely noticeable on a lot of these open shots. Um, I think Elijah Hughes played out of his mind, all things considered, and like somebody who's probably not going to get enough credit for the effort he put in um, early in the season and the one that he put in toward the end of the season when he kind of, you know, gained the hot shooting hand again, scored 25 points in this game. Tyus Battle obviously did what he we're used to seeing from him, and unfortunately what might be remembered from a lot of fans is just the fact that the shots weren't falling late. I think some of that's oddly fatigue. Uh, I, I think the you know the, the announcers mentioned altitude as a potential. I think that's more it than than just like playing a lot of minutes. I think altitude. I think a long season in general. I think the fact that Battle was asked to carry the team a lot. Who knows how healthy Battle was? Yeah, he was also coming off the injury, which right. you know shouldn't go completely overshadowed. Of course, and like so, so that's all worth considering. I, I think in general, like if S, again, you know, if SU scores sixty nine points, if SU has three guys score fourteen points or more, like all of that should be enough. Um, and it just wasn't a large part because of a defense that, like I said, definitely declined year over year. And on top of that, like started to show some wear. I don't. I'm not going to extrapolate this out into a larger point about the zone not working because I don't think that's the case. But what I do see here, and it's something that we've talked about on the podcast, something we talked about in the blog before on Twitter during games, that as, as three-point shooting rises uh, significantly in, in NCAA games, and it has, um, Ken Palm had a graphic that went up that showed just how much uh, three-point shooting has spiked in NCAA tournament games over the last decade. Uh, some of that's the NBAification of, you know, the college games. Some of that is just the fact that, you know, players do get a little bit addicted to the, like, last-second shot and those big momentum swings, 
Um, and you're going to see a lot of guys, you know, take advantage of that big stage. We've seen it for SU as well. Like, so that happens. But then it's not just that, but also the fact that players are taking deeper and longer threes. And if people are doing that, uh, that's where the zone can sometimes get a little exposed, especially when, you know, you sub in a freshman who's a moderate-ish defender for arguably the best defender on your team in Frank Howard. Yeah, I, I also think something that I've noticed a lot since I read this piece, and I I think it was NBC, I'm trying to remember who it was. It was a, a great piece, more NBA-focused, but it's just kind of on the uh, geometry of the basketball court um, with people taking deeper threes, and there were a number of those in this game, and I think it might account for some of Baylor's uh, not necessarily in this game specifically, but their crazy offensive rebound numbers, uh, despite the fact they play a largely guard-oriented lineup. Apparently, when you shoot, like, the farther away you shoot causes more offensive rebounds, apparently, just because the ball is ricocheting so much farther out. And it just seemed, uh, and I know Syracuse had more offensive rebounds in this game, but it just seemed like there were times where Baylor's guys were sitting directly where they needed to be to get those second-chance opportunities. Uh, and I do think some of that was shooting over the top of the zone and, and just being prepared for the different angles coming off the rim. Um, th- there's just something to, uh, and we, again, we see a lot more in the NBA because the line's farther back, but you know, when you get these like 30, 27 to 30 foot threes, apparently like offensive rebound rates spike to like, I think almost double what they are on your regular three point shots. So I do think that might be a thing to worry about, not in this game specifically, but as we, uh, get closer to where the college game is going to uh, start to match the NBA game in terms of the rates of shooting. And and maybe it doesn't become that uh, as big an issue in college because there are just fewer good shooters, so you're not going to see maybe the total uh, transformation into the the you know the three-point game that we're seeing now just because it's not, you know, at the end of the day, you need guys who can knock down shots. But when there are teams that are hot like this, uh, it does create extra opportunities when you're able to shoot over the top of the zone. Yeah, I, I think that... Like, we actually saw a couple times where you had full teams almost that were able to shoot over the top of the zone. You know, Baylor did. Uh, obviously, Virginia did in that ridiculous performance that they put on at the Dome a few weeks back. Like, I, again, I'm not going to make this some, like, anti-zone screed. I'm just going to more point out, and I know that you agree to some extent, that, like, this does kind of create a staying power issue. If teams continue, if teams figure out, like, okay, here's the calculus to beat Syracuse, deep threes strong offensive rebounding and then like their players are probably going to force themselves into some bad shots and we did regularly in this game i i think that you know great defenders help nullify that and again that's where frank howard's absence plays a huge part and i think you know this year's team might not have been as great individually on, on defense as, as some of the previous teams were again despite the fact that we returned a lot of guys uh, i i think that it's just it's something to watch and it's something that I'm going to be keeping an eye out on over the next, you know, season or so. Uh, you know, next year is going to be a lot of change, but there's also the potential for something to be different uh, at the very least. I'm I'm just very curious to see, you know, if this is an approach that, that teams continue to take where, you know, where you once weren't able to shoot over the top of the zone. If you continue to extend it out and continue to force moderate defenders um, into situations where they have to cover a lot of ground in the zone, uh, I am curious to see if the effectiveness of it all just kind of collapses a little bit. Yep, and and obviously not every team is going to be in a great position to do it because they're just not going to have the personnel. Like, we we didn't think Baylor did, but I guess, you know, we caught them on a hot day, but Virginia obviously did with Jerome and Guy and everyone else, uh, Hunter. But it is something to watch as as the game progresses in that direction. Um, And, you know, guys 
uh, are specializing more in three-point shooting. So we'll see. I, I don't think it's like an immediate concern, I, and I don't think Bam's going to stop playing the zone next year. Um, but it, it's something, you know, it'll become pretty apparent, I think, if it's something that's untenable. And I don't think it's because the defense doesn't work. It's just it may not work as well in the the way that, you know, five, six years ago, we could easily play it against anyone. And, and you know, a team would just have to be legit, like red hot to beat it by shooting threes. But we'll see. Uh, and, and talking about next year's team, I, I am pretty excited. I think things will be different, but there is that whole thing where without expectation, Syracuse does seem to perform better. Uh, I don't know if that's just like kind of in our heads or not, but it, it does feel that way, especially considering how this year went and how the Andrew White team uh, turned out, uh, which also had really high expectations going in. But I also think, I, I think there might be some kind of benefit, and I'm not saying this as like a knock on him because I think he was a great player for us. I think there might be something beneficial about moving on from the Tyus Battle era where, you know, we had this one guy we could rely on and to get, get the ball to, and we knew he was going to just dominate the end of games and take every last shot. Um, I think going towards a more uh, team-oriented thing where, you know, Hughes might be the guy, Brissett might be the guy, but he's going to take a step forward. Obviously, we're bringing in Gooding and, and Joe Girard and have all these other uh, weapons where it might become more of a well-rounded group just because we don't have the ties battle to lean on. Yeah, I think we saw a little bit of a preview there. Um, and we talked about this last week. We saw a little bit of a preview of that um, in the ACC tournament, both against Pitt you know, and against Duke. I, I think that that was some good conditioning for, for next year on the offensive side of the ball. And, and like you said, there's a lot of new weapons coming in. We'll see how those pieces fit into the zone, and that's going to dictate a lot of success for Syracuse. But uh, importantly... I, I think that offensively we're just going to look a lot better, and and that in and of itself is a is a great thing for me. I, I know Syracuse is never going to be, or at least never under Bayheim, going to be a team that that that's going to start you know running excessively and suddenly you know scoring eighty five points a game. But if we can average somewhere around seventy um, and look a little more efficient doing it, I, I think that that'll that'll be enough in my book. Yeah, I think we're adding more shooting. I think we're starting to look at t- different kind of players. Like, there was a little while we were so heavily recruiting towards the zone, and it worked because, look, at 2013, 2016, like, the zone is a total weapon in the tournament. But those teams weren't as well-rounded as, like, 2010, 2012, where the zone was still very good, uh, if not better. Um, and part of that's talent. We were just recruiting really well in general those years. But the types of players we were recruiting were a little different, and it's... I think Beheim's recruiting strategy has kind of shifted over the years. And for a bit, we were basically selling out for big-time, rangy athletes who were going to be really good on defense, and we'd figure out the offense from there. And now it seems like we're going back towards more skilled guys. We're taking more shots on on a Joe Girard who's, you know, since one. It's not like he's he's not 5'10", but might be a guy who a couple years ago we're like, oh, we're just not going to be able to put a, put, uh, plug him in there. And now we're like, all right, we'll figure it out because if his offense is – what it looked like, you know, I don't think he's going to score 50 points a game in college, but if his offense translates to uh, the D1 level, you know, that could outweigh him giving up a couple buckets on, uh, on the top of the zone. So I, I do appreciate that, and I think this class coming in is, is pretty interesting. Uh, why don't we hold off for a little word from our sponsor? It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. 
Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. And we're back for a little halftime too. Um, and then Dan, we can jump back into that conversation around uh, kind of the incoming talent recruiting and stuff like that. Because I do agree with you. I think it, I think it opens up a lot of cool possibilities. And I think we are seeing a little bit of a change uh, from Bayheim, a guy who notoriously perhaps has resisted it in the past. But Dan, what have you been drinking of late? Uh, didn't have a ton of new things, but they were good. Um, I had a couple of Heaven Hell or Hobokins from 902 Brewing. Uh, out in Jersey, which is just a really strong IPA. Uh, I had a couple high allies, which are always delicious. I had my first of the year uh, KBS from Founders, which is always wonderful. Uh, nice to see that on draft very locally. And then I also had uh, a Daisy Cutter Pale Ale from Half Acre, which was delicious. Very nice. I, uh, I enjoy most of those as well. Uh, didn't this week, but did enjoy. have enjoyed most of them in the past. Um, some stuff from me. Had a Prairie's uh, Double Dunk. It was a an Imperial Stout made with Oreos, and it was pretty good. Uh, had Alpine Pitcher Perfect, their Pale Ale, uh, from Jester King and Fair State up in Minnesota. Had the uh, 1170 Miles uh, Saison that was super good. Had a Stone Moxie Gold IPA. Went over to Hermosa Brewing Co. down in Hermosa Beach. Had a Get On Up IPA. Then had uh, some Luponic Distortion, number 12, from Firestone. Grabbed a six-pack of that last week, so enjoyed a few of those. Nothing crazy. A lot of stuff I've drank before, but still productive. In any case, Dan, you mentioned like us maybe going out there and getting some different types of players. Uh, now that we're fully past the sanctions, uh, now that we don't have to necessarily go after you know these big four- and five-star kids on, on, on every single scholarship, to, to stay competitive, I, I think that we, you know, I don't want to see us lose our chances at those players, but I think, you know, Beheim said in his own book that, you know, SU is never going to be consistently competing against UNC and Kansas and Kentucky and Duke uh, for talent. And, and I think we're seeing us toe into those waters, but by and large, we're avoiding it, just as he kind of alluded to a few years ago there. I, I think one thing, though, that we definitely need to see, and it's something you and I talked about on Slack a little bit, and plenty of other people have mentioned, is like, we, we need to find some sort of source of offense at the five spot where we pretty much haven't had anyone now since uh, Rocky and Christmas. Yeah, and even Christmas, it took four full years. He was not an offensive player, really, at all until his senior year. No, we were talking about it um, after, and I don't know if he's going to end up at Syracuse, but uh, Syracuse offered uh, Dane, Dane, I'm going to assume it's Dane Danger from uh, Minneapolis, who is... Great name, just like... A fantastic name. Um, Definitely in some rap crew from like the late 80s, early 90s. (laughs) Yeah, but he's like very much uh, an atypical offer to a center in this kind of zone zone forward era i would call it from like 2013 till now uh where it's been like those very big rangy uh seven feet tall or, or close not particularly offensive uh offensively skilled big men and those have worked you know for better or worse obviously rack ended up being a great player for us i don't think any of us are trading by cicada for anything but those were also earlier on uh and, and that's not taking anything away from the play we've gotten from pastel and some of the other guys uh, more recently but he's sits eight He's 240, he's more built like AO, and he apparently has like kind of a high-low game where offensively he's crafty around the rim, he can he can get up there, and he can also shoot a little bit from the outside. And while he might not be the 
potential game-changing player underneath that Pascal is when he's playing well, and he definitely was in his best games. Like he was a he looked at the Duke game this year, it completely changed how how everything went. Getting some kind of offense from the five spot, I think, is something we have to start looking for because it's impossible uh, to just play the game like that when you're going four on five or you're having to sub in like a Marek who I think plays the five really well on offense, but on defense, like he's just, you know, it's like a, he's like a three-year-old, like in a, in a giant windstorm on the coast. Like they're just waves coming at him and he's, you know, doing his best to survive, but it's unfair to him to try to put him in that position for long term. So it, it is interesting that we offer a kid like that because he doesn't have the height that we've been recruiting at that position recently. But I do wonder if that's a sign, and this is just one offer, so maybe maybe we're off base here, but I do wonder if it's a sign that Beheim is starting to look um, at more stilled, well-rounded bigs and maybe trying to get back to that that place where we had with like a Rick Jackson or an Arinze who were both incredibly stilled around the rim and also were plus rebounders, where I think we've had an issue with guys who are good shot blockers and rim protectors, but they would get you know, boxed out and bullied a little bit underneath when when they were going up for rebounds, and that became an issue over the last couple of years as well. So I'm interested to see what the trends are there, but but right now we're you know still very much in just the offer phase, and we'll, we'll see what kind of class we end up building here in 2020. Yeah, I think I think in general, like you're right, I think we've been playing four and five basketball. I think in general we've been recruiting a lot of these kids who, and I don't have a huge, huge problem with, with who we've brought in in the door, obviously, but... Like we we've recruited a lot of these kids who are who are like your classic like Bayheim project, and usually those guys would be brought along by somebody who was not a project in the middle. Uh, and and now like we've you know like Barama is a bit of a project. Like Chukwu was a little bit of a project and never really put on the weight that like we maybe thought he could have. Like Marek's never going to put on so much weight that he's going to be a huge force at the five spot. Really, he, he's if he puts on you know, 10, 20 pounds, he's going to be a really lethal player at the four. I mean, I, I, quick tangent on him. Like, I, I love his handle at times. I think that his passing ability is phenomenal uh, for being a big man. But I think that until he has more confidence in his in his ability to drive to the rim until we see, you know, a more consistent jumper from him. And he, he is a very accurate shooter, but until we see a more consistent jumper from him and until we see him, you know, not hit the floor in a heap every time he's going up with a couple other bigs for a rebound. Like, I, I think we still need somebody, uh, somebody bigger and somebody a little more forceful, somebody that is in the 240-ish range, uh, and and can and can really battle it out. I mean, the ACC doesn't have a ton of like you know pure centers, but SU hasn't had one in a while, and a guy who can really uh, again play on both ends and specifically on offense. I think if we can find a way to alleviate that four on five uh, nature of things of late, I think I think having I think like even having like junior year rack would have made this team significantly different. Uh, I think that about really any of the last few teams, if you if you even put in like a junior year rack, they become a much better squad. If you put in, you know, late career Rick Jackson or Renze, they turn into, you know, national championship contenders. So I, I am definitely hoping that, you know, we, we take advantage of maybe a little bit of a clean slate, like you mentioned with battle leaving and figure, okay, like let's try to reorient this team around, you know, hot shooting guards who can, who can hit from outside um, and then some bigger bodies at the forward spots and, and maybe remake what people think Syracuse basketball is right now. 
Yeah, and this is probably the perfect time to do it. And I don't think we're going to completely abandon like those like shot blocking long fives that we're bringing in John Bolajak, who I think is way more along those lines. And, uh, and at least Jesse like, Edwards just got offered too, and he's about the same. Yeah, he's also a project. So I think there's a place for them. I think we just need to supplement them with guys who we can plug in and get some offense in the inside. And then, you know, hopefully if they have some passing ability, can then spread the floor because we are definitely more shooting shooter-focused now um, with Gerard, with Beheim, with a couple of the other guys we're bringing in. Or we have, obviously, Hughes is a really nice shooter. Like, I, I, think, uh, I think we could balance this roster better versus just trying to uh, plug in like the perfect guy for this one thing uh, at the positions and then not worry about depth and not worry about, you know, having a more well-rounded and deep roster. Yeah, and I mean, this goes back to, you know, not to knock Bayheim, but obviously like the NBA and college basketball in general is, is a little bit different than his, all right, like plug in guys who fit this role in the zone and, and then hopefully they can do X, Y, and Z on offense. Like, the NBA and a lot of like top levels of college basketball, everybody's a little more switchable. Everybody can play you know numerous positions. Like there's there's a lot more ball movement. Like these are all things that have been largely absent from Syracuse basketball for the last like five or six seasons. Even if like Bay, again, Bayheim's not going to become a Steve Kerr disciple, but or or you know any number of other coaches, but in the NBA, but like but he can come part of the way at least in terms of just embracing guys who can do things on offense and be versatile on defense. And I think we might see a little bit more of a modernized Syracuse basketball program as Bayheim kind of wraps up his coaching career over the next few seasons. Yeah, and we, while we know he's stubborn, um, which I think he would be the first one to tell you, we also know that Bayheim watches a ton of basketball. So it's not like he doesn't know what's happening. So it'll, it'll be interesting to see how we move forward here and maybe – you know, this year he thought going, you know, so heavy on Tyus and, and trying to, you know, ease other guys in was the way to go the last couple of years. And maybe it was, but hopefully, like, with, with those guys gone, hope we get a kind of a clean slate here. Speaking of clean slates, uh, another conversation we were having that we're going to bring to the podcast, Mike Hopkins, who, uh, who would seem to be uh, one of the hot names in college coaching. It seems like some people mentioned him around UCLA. Uh, I don't see that happening. In any case, uh, whether true or not, it was in part leveraged for a nice uh, hefty extension for for Hop over at Washington. Congrats to him. Uh, it obviously makes it a little bit tougher for Syracuse to, to potentially lure him back um, when Beheim retires, though. And I think that that's something that a lot of people are starting to keep their eye on is, you know, now his extension goes past when Jim would potentially uh, retire. Now it means more money technically um if that would have for buyout if that would have to happen within the next like couple seasons i don't think jim's leaving until buddy uh, wraps up his career uh but in any case this is something that you know is going to be constantly on syracuse fans minds especially if you know su doesn't necessarily get back into that you know four seat or higher range that, that we were used to for a little bit of a stretch there yeah it's going to be interesting um the 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 Washington extension definitely makes it tougher, although I think we knew that was going to come, if not this year, the next year with how Hopkins has started there. That being said, A, I think he's going to get the first call whenever Bayham does retire. I think that's only fair, to be honest. Just as he left doesn't mean he at least doesn't get, like, right of first refusal. And I think everyone would be fine with that, given how he started his, his, 
head coaching career out in Washington. From there, and this is this is not just like a couple of people. This is like a very uh, strange, large portion of the fan base seems to think that if Hopkins doesn't get the job or if we can't get Hopkins, we have to go immediately down the line to Autry or Jerry. Yeah. And I think we should be a little more, um, I think we should give our program, and I'm not knocking either of those guys, and maybe by the time Beheim is, does retire, like one of, one of those two guys looks like, you know, power five head coaching material. I think we should give our program a little more credit in terms of what we can actually get. Because we just reportedly gave Dino Babers a very competitive extension to be the head football coach. Syracuse basketball, much to, I think, both of our chagrin, is a much bigger animal than Syracuse football. So Syracuse basketball has a lot going for it because of Bayheim, but it's not predicated on Bayheim being the head coach the entire, you know, for the rest of eternity. We have a giant stadium and a rabid fan base in a great conference. We could go make a big time hire. It, it's I just don't understand why people like just think we have to go hire one of our own assistants or keep it in house, um, just because it's been in house for so long now. I think if if that job opens and we don't think Austria Jerry is a guy and Hopkins doesn't want to leave and that's you know definitely his right because he's built something pretty impressive out in Seattle and, and I'm sure they're going to be uh, a menace in the Pac-12 for a while. We can go look at some other big time coaches and, and I, this all came up because Nate Oates got the Alabama job and he was like one of the obvious guys to look at because he was over in Buffalo. But like Syracuse is, is a top ten to fifteen job by pretty much every metric and and we should. We should understand that and like treat a potential opening at some point as such, and not just say, "Oh, we have to give Jerry the job because he's you know coached under Beheim for a couple of years." Like Hopkins was in line to get the job because he coached under Beheim for over two decades and won a national title as an assistant and was one of the best recruiters in the country. Like there was, it, we didn't just give him the job because he was there, or didn't give him the 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 title because he was there. He like put in the work. So I think. If we're to like elevate someone else to that status, they should be where Hop was when we decided he would be the next head coach. Right, and, and yeah, this is this just comes from. We've talked about this around, you know, AD hiring. We've talked about this around football coach hiring. Is that the, the, the Syracuse mentality because of how we hired for such a very long time across all sports? Like it, it just there, there's this automatic assumption, and, and you and I had this assumption. Until we went out and got Babers to begin with, and until we gave him an extension, that like yes, he was probably going to try to you know underpay a little bit. But I think John Wildhack understands the importance of paying coaches and understands the importance of you know having quality head coaching, you know, and in at every sport, but especially you know the the, the sports that make the most money. I, I think you know Bayheim's given us a little bit of a hometown discount, but like if he hadn't, do you really think that Syracuse would have underpaid him for the last several decades? No. Like SU would have shelled out whatever they needed to shell out to keep Jim Beheim around, and and I think you know Hopkins will probably command something in the three to four million range, and that's going to be on the very very high end of coaches in college basketball, and I think SU is going to pay it, and I think that that if it's not him, then it's somebody else who they'll probably pay a similar amount to, whether that's Nate Oates after a nice run at Alabama, uh, whether it's some other hot coaching prospect that, like, I haven't even really dove into yet. Like, you know what? I, I think Autry can do the job if called upon. I think Jerry's too far out right now. I don't think Alan Griffin's ready. Like, th- there's th- there's just this there's just this weird, you know, idea among Syracuse fans that, like, that like only just because Jim's been here for for over forty years that that only someone who's done the same or only someone who went here 
uh, you know, can suddenly step into that role. Like, yes, there's things that you need to, to quote unquote understand about Syracuse, but you know, it, that doesn't require a degree from Syracuse to do it. Like what Syracuse is from a basketball program, from an institutional standpoint, from a city standpoint is going to evolve over time. And, you know, part of the reason that, that it doesn't evolve as much is because we have so many longstanding institutions like Bayheim, and it's not to knock him. It's just to point out that like, having the same coach for that long helps you stay set in a certain collection of ways for a very long time. Uh, and, and I think that that goes for the basketball program that goes for, you know, the kind of legacy setup that, that men's lacrosse has been, uh, football, obviously for a very long time, didn't really change coaches very often. So eventually we're going to move on and eventually it's probably going to be someone that didn't go to Syracuse if, if Hopkins doesn't take over and that's probably going to be fine. And if it's not, we're going to hire somebody else that's going to make sure it's fine. Yeah, the beauty of having a Jim Beheim for 40 years is that after him, even if it's not his guy, and I don't honestly think Beheim is going to be, I don't think he's going to pull a power play like Calhoun to get his guy in there. Like, that just does not seem to be him. I think when Beheim retires, he's going to be pretty hands-off, to be honest. But the, the, the nice part about having one guy set you up for 40 years is that you can then carry that momentum over and all the things that were built under him are still there. It, he's not going to take the dome with him to Camillus when he retires. Like, it just, it, the whole, that whole thing just doesn't make sense. And if Autry in the next, over the next three or four years just starts pulling in five stars and, and, and Beheim's like this, he's ready, then all, all the power to him that I, that I hope he gets a shot. But right now, Autry is not where Hopkins was. And that's really, it's just, it's just like, we, I want us to be broader thinkers as a fan base here and not just get like stuck in a rut where, you know, there's only five people on the planet who can coach this team because they went here between 1979 and 19 and, you know, 2006. Yeah. Like that's, I mean, th- th- that's like a, a less successful, like USC mentality. That's like what <laughs> St. John's did. What are we going to do? Do hire, hire Carmelo? Like yeah, that's what St. John's did. That's what, that's what. You know, UCLA is do has been doing to some extent. That's what USC has been doing for a very long time. Like there's there's not a ton of success with that model. Yeah. Meanwhile, like Kentucky went and hired John Calipari, who had no connection to their program. Kansas hired Bill Self, who's an Oklahoma State guy. Uh, I mean, Duke's had Coach Tay forever, but Coach Tay isn't a Duke yeah, guy. Nope. Like or now he is, but wasn't at the time. I mean, Roy was um, a UNC guy, but whatever. Roy was a UNC guy, but. But also had a lot of success at Kansas first. Yeah, also had like 20 years of... If there's a Syracuse guy out there, who I'm not thinking of, who has like 20 (laughs) years of success at a peer program, yes, we should go hire him. (laughs) I agree. Yeah. And maybe that's Hop. Maybe, maybe, you know, again, in four years, if Hopkins is still rolling, he's going to get the first call, and he should, and hopefully he takes it. And I do think Syracuse will offer him... I think if Hop turns down Syracuse, it won't be for money. I think it'll be because he wants to stay at the place he's built and that's like you know you can't really knock him for that absolutely i think more power to hop do whatever is right for him obviously you know part of why he's um, at washington tennessee be close to his to his family and and to his father uh in particular so yeah like I, i don't i don't want him to give that up if he's building something special at washington where nothing special has really ever been built and and he's looking at it and measuring it against okay, or I can inherit something that somebody else has built. And yes, I was there for a lot of it as a player and as an assistant. But at the same time, like, do I want to step into that shadow? And that's going to that's gonna be an interesting conversation, to be honest. And you can look at, 
you know, other programs that have pulled that off well. You can look at others that haven't um, in terms of, you know, stepping in for legendary coaches. Sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't as much. And sometimes sometimes those handpicked successors, though, don't always... They, then you feel afraid to pull the trigger uh, when it comes to moving on from them. And, like, this isn't, like, a scientific, but you can look at... UCLA, you can look at, like, as, as a case that didn't really work as well all the time. Um, you can look at UNC as a case that did. You can look at Kansas as something that did. Um, Kentucky is something that has and hasn't worked um, in different stages. Oklahoma State, Arizona, to, like, lesser extents. Like, th- there's, a lot of, there's a lot of examples of it going both ways. Um, and picking someone is not a guarantee of success either way for Syracuse or anyone else. And, and, you know, it, it's going to be weird for SU fans from an identity standpoint of, you know, oh, what do we do now that we're not, that we're not Jim Beheim's program, that we're not Jim Beheim's fans, that we're not defined by him, like, realistically, like, you should have already started getting used to that idea when Hopkins took over for that nine-game stretch uh, a few years ago. I, I think that, you know, it's not like Jim's getting any younger, it's not like Jim's was 40 and now suddenly he's 74. Like these are, like he's been on the older end for a while. We're gonna figure it out eventually, and and this this fan base is gonna have a, an existential crisis about it, and and I'm hopefully I'm around talking everybody through it to some extent, myself included. But it's, we're gonna figure it out, and and if we're meant to be a top five to ten program, then we'll stick around, and if we're not, then we figure out where we fit in in the next tier and hopefully we're not falling any further to be in the depths that like Wake Forest and NC State are at. Ouch, I'm in those two together. It's rough. What's up, <laughs> NC State? Oh, God, they're going to be... Well, no, no one from NC State's listening to this. <laughs> <laughs> this is true. Especially not this far in. No, at this point they've... We're in... We're in they're, they're like, oh, they're talking to, they're talking to Tulane by the 52-minute mark. Speaking of... Shout out to Tulane, big hire, Ron Hunter. Honestly, that was a great hire for them. Fantastic uh, hire. Like, really smart stuff. I mean, no one's going to see the games he's coaching because they'll be on ESPN+. Plus. But oh, I'll see him. I'm a happy subscriber. Well then. Dan will see the games, and Dan will be watching all the <laughs> Tulane games. I won't be until I eventually cave and get ESPN+. Plus. Really, I just need to—I know I need to bite the bullet. I just haven't because I hate— live tweeting something that is always like 30 seconds to a minute and a half behind. It's very fair. I mean, that's my existence because I don't have table. So I'd save a lot of money if I did. I really just should. I, I, I'm going to seriously consider it this summer when like every single summer I like reevaluate my, my cable package. Well, my direct TV package. And every year I I come to the conclusion that I'm not going to make the switch. Um, especially now that ACC network is on direct TV. So I don't, yeah, that's a nice that's a nice perk. Yeah, that's a nice perk. Um, Good job by them too, getting that on there so quick. What I don't understand though is why is Directv on but Uverse isn't. I don't know, but it does seem like the ACC network is going to like are they going to be everywhere? Most places it, it needs to be, which is nice because that could have been an issue. With SEC, it was an issue until like the week of. Yeah, and like the, and Pac-12 is still pretty Pac-12 much. Pac-12 doesn't exist. Yeah. I'm not convinced the Pac-12 network exists. Honestly, no one gets the games out here either. I don't have the Pac-12 it's network. It's so funny. It's it's incredible. Remember it's incredible all those in the markets don't get it. Remember all those gushing articles about the Pac-12 network when it started, and like how they like Latin, yeah, like they like they own the rights. Larry Scott's is going to have a football stadium in space. 
and like and now it's like larry scott's a like bag of trash and him and all the other hyper capitalist idiots in san francisco can go die like larry scott's <laughs> all the games we played in his giant hilarious vegas uh, hotel room huh. in front of him and him only i mean that, that was that was the plan all along cal <laughs> oregon state in the aria deluxe suite he he wanted like a pocket universe where he could just watch the Pac-12 teams by himself. The Pac-12 is actually just in the Marvel from Men in Black. <laughs> <laughs> All right, I think that was a good place to uh, to wrap us up here. This has been a fun episode. We uh, we started out pretty somber with uh, with, with the Mets and then with. Uh, with Syracuse basketball losses, but I, I think we recovered. And oh, there were some of the Mets the day before opening day. <laughs> Just the Mets have not lost a game in 2019. Yeah, it's it's bad. It's going poorly. True facts stated. <laughs> Shout out to the person who who uh, voice checked me as, "Oh, you're on you're on the noon spot, aren't you?" From the bar watching the Syracuse Baylor game. <laughs> Didn't know who I was, but then heard me talk. You're like, "Wait, are you Dan Lyons?" I was like, "Yep." <laughs> That's very. I've actually never had that happen. I've had I've had people recognize me from when I wrote for the site more when I was a student a lot. This is the first time this specific thing has ever happened to me, which was fun. So I forget who that was. I don't I didn't get their name, but shout out to, to you, dear listener. I, I yeah I've, so, been, I've been recognized by appearance. I've never been recognized by face by uh by voice. No, I was stunned. I like I didn't have a good response because I didn't expect because I've I've done recognized from from face before but never never like that so that was a a strange and and uh unexpected thing but very cool as well very cool very legal nice well hopefully hopefully we we, we get more of that at, at, at the uh the local hangouts in new york and maybe la if i ever leave the house again <laughs> cool. dan anything else before we uh depart we got like a little over two weeks until the spring game so we'll be talking some football over the next couple of weeks no, excited for that. Excited for this uh, underratedly crazy lacrosse team we have. Um, both of them. Both of them are, are fun as hell. Both of them. Yes. After a, The men, after a season opening loss to Colgate, have won five of six. Uh, include, the, the one loss was an overtime to Virginia, and they just came back from like six down to beat Duke in overtime um, on Sunday. So, yeah, that team is, I think, a lot better than people thought it was going to be. Uh, the women have been really good for a while, and have I think they were down last year, right? And they've kind of bounced back. The freaking uh, mumps thing. Right, I forgot about yeah, that. Yeah, killed fall ball. There was no chemistry. Everybody wasn't ready. And then this year, both teams decided to schedule like seven-game homestands, which, good for you. And they've both looked pretty good. Yep, the men have Notre Dame on the road. Uh, on Saturday, which will be tough. Notre Dame's number twelve, and they always play us extremely tough. The women smoked Albany tonight. Yes, I did see that. Um, Want to pull up the schedule since this is our main sport now? Um, when can you see the women? Well, you can watch the replay, maybe. And other than that, I think Duke on ACC network, network extra. So if you get, I'm assuming that'll be on your local ACC representative, uh, which will be dead next year. Yeah, or, on watch, or watch ESPN, whichever. Or watch ESPN, yeah. So watch, support the lacrosse teams, support softball, and yeah, hopefully another nice spring where we rack up some, uh, some uh, whatchamacallit, cup points. Learfield cup points? Learfield slash... Directors. What, uh, Directors cup, yeah. yeah. 
All good. Um, all right. That was Dan. I'm John. Thank you, everybody, for listening to Trillions and Absolute Podcasts, Syracuse Sports Make Me Drink. Please be sure to rate, review, subscribe on iTunes, on Megaphone, on any other service you might listen to us on, and uh, go orange. Go orange.